This is Cincinnati Edition on 91.7 WVXU. I'm Lucy May. Jurors on Thursday found former Ohio House Speaker Larry Householder and former Ohio Republican Party Chairman Matt Borges guilty guilty of federal racketeering charges. The case has been called the largest bribery and money laundering scheme ever perpetuated against the people of Ohio. Joining me to discuss that case and the verdict, along with news from the Ohio State House, are WCPO9 I-Team reporter Paula Christian. Welcome back, Paula. Thanks, Lucy. And Ohio Public Radio and Television State House News Bureau reporter and producer Joe Ingalls. Thanks for being here, Joe. Great, for, great to be here. Paul, I want to start with uh, this trial. The jury found former Speaker Larry Householder and his co-defendant Matt Borges guilty on Thursday. First, remind us of the charges they faced, what they were accused of doing. Well, they faced um, racketeering conspiracy charges, which... You know, that that's a charge that's most often associated with organized crime, with, you know, people running a large scale drug operation or, you know, people in the mob. And it's one of the first times it's ever been used to convict an elected leader and a lobbyist. Um, so they were accused in this very complex dark money scheme. It was $61 million that was funneled from uh, First Energy in Akron to... Um, Using 501c4s, which are nonprofits, so it, it allows anonymous um, donations, infinite amounts, um, and it's really hard to track. And the money was used to get um, Larry Householder elected as speaker to fund a slate of candidates to keep his power to pass House Bill 6, which is a nuclear bailout worth $1.3 billion that First Energy benefited from, and to prevent it from being overturned on a referendum. So it was very complicated. It spanned three and a half years, and it involved tens of millions of dollars. Mm. And the jury's verdict came after just over nine hours of deliberations. What did that tell you about this case? Well, it told me that they had made up their minds pretty quickly. I mean, for any context, the verdict in the public corruption trial of former Cincinnati City Councilman P.G. Sittenfeld, that jury was out for over 12 hours before they found him guilty, but they only had one defendant. So in this case, you know, you had Larry Householder and Matt Borges. So nine hours of deliberation um, in a trial that lasted almost seven weeks with, um, you know, hundreds of pages of documents, very complicated, showed me that the jury had made up its mind very early on. Hmm. What did Larry Householder have to say about the verdict? Well, he was very chatty with reporters when he was leaving the courthouse yesterday. He said he was surprised by the verdict because he's not guilty. Um, He says he will definitely appeal um, that he's going back to his farm in Perry County and he's going to, um, you know, plant his garden and go fishing with his son and just, you know, watch and wait for his appeal to move forward. But interestingly enough, he still insisted that House Bill 6, which was the legislation at the heart of the case, was still good legislation. Hmm. 
We do have a little bit of audio from former Speaker Householder. He was asked if he'll return to politics if he prevails on appeal. This is what he had to say. I don't know about that. I, I have no idea. It's, uh, this is all... I, I was surprised by the verdict, so I, I haven't thought that far ahead. Why were you surprised? Because well, I'm not guilty. We also have some audio from uh, Matt Borges about his reaction to the ver- verdict. He said he respects the process but disagreed with the verdict. Here's what he had to say. I did not believe that anything proved that I had committed in, that I had engaged in a, a racketeering conspiracy, which is why I fought this from the beginning. Paula, what do you think was the most compelling evidence or, or testimony in this case? Well, for Larry Householder, it was definitely him taking the stand. And I asked him, you know, in hindsight, was that a bad decision? And um, he said, you know, he had waited two and a half years to speak and he wanted to speak. But, um, you know, the the way that he was picked apart on cross-examination by prosecutor Emily Gladfelter was some of the most dramatic um, court action that I've seen in my career. Um, After that cross-examination, all of the legal experts that I've talked to about this case from the beginning, two of them that were in the courtroom said there's no way he can recover Mm. from that Um, and that 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 he would ultimately be found guilty. And they were correct. Um, so, and in Matt Borges's case, um, you know, absolutely, it was the testimony of his former friend, Tyler Furman, who said that Borges tried to bribe him for inside information um, to defeat the ballot referendum on House Bill 6. He went to the FBI and he wore a wire on Matt Borges and he testified that he felt threatened and afraid and that there was no question this was a bribe. Hmm. Did the lawyer for Matt Borges try to distance his client from from Larry Householder? He did. And I actually thought he did a pretty good job. I mean, um, he didn't ask a lot of questions. There were many witnesses where he didn't ask any questions at all. Um, and I actually think that that Larry Householder distanced himself from Matt Borges. He said he didn't like him. They never got along and he was never, quote, on the farm with him. Um, so, you know, there, there was definitely some possibility that Matt could have been found not guilty. But, you know, ultimately, just because he wasn't a part of the conspiracy from the very beginning and just because he didn't lead it like Larry Householder did, it didn't mean that he didn't join it and financially benefit from it. I mean, First Energy was throwing around a ton of money. They called it the bank. And there was this, you know, money grab for people at the state house to just, you know, get fat off of it and make as much money as they could. Hmm. This You mentioned uh, the, the case against former city council members P.G. Sittenfeld a little bit earlier. This was the same courtroom where P.G. Sittenfeld was tried. Talk about how this case compares to that one. Same courtroom, same prosecutors, um, and, you know, the same undercover agents um, and one of the same leading FBI agents. So there was definitely some overlap. um, But, you know, these cases were vastly different, vastly different. You know, after covering the city hall corruption case, you know, and covering PG's trial, 
I kind of left with the thought of like, wow, is this really how um, work get, got done at City Hall? It kind of left a bad taste in your mouth. And then you sit through a trial um, that involves vastly larger amounts of money, much more complex scheme, many more people. Um, and it was so much worse. Mm. I mean, it was so much worse. What do you think the ramifications could what, what ramifications could this case have in in terms of how business does get done in the state house, Paula? Well, if you look at City Hall, I mean, it, it changed dramatically. The corruption scandal, you know, we had three council members arrested in 2020. And what happened after that was a dramatic change in how business gets done there. Um, we got a completely new city council elected. Many of these people, you know, have very little to none, no political experience. They came in and they focused on transparency. They focused on um, not letting developers uh, get quite as much access to them, donate the kind of money that they did before. It was really a complete overhaul at City Hall. Now, is it perfect? No. But, you know, Hopefully, we see something like that at the state house um, to follow, you know. And also, the other thing is, you know, the the FBI agents, the prosecutors, they well, actually, it's the prosecutors have always kind of hinted that this case is not over. Mm. I mean, everyone who has followed this case fully expects there to be more indictments soon. Um, and you know, we asked. U.S. Attorney Ken Parker, um, the media did, about, you know, if there would be more arrests. He declined to answer. But, you know, one reporter asked specifically, you've arrested and convicted the bribees. Are you going to charge the bribers? Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what we're waiting for. Interesting. Well, I want to turn to some of what's been going on in the State House now this past week um, and talk to you, Joe. Joe, you, there was a hearing this week on a new bill, House Bill 6, that you covered. It would ban transgender athletes from playing girls' sports in elementary, middle, and high schools. Tell us who's behind this bill and, and what the rationale is for it. Well, this bill is a tweaked version of one that was in the former General Assembly. The same sponsor, though, Representative Jenna Powell. And it would basically say in K-12 through schools... Um, that someone uh, who is a transgender athlete could not participate on girls' sports teams. Now, you'll remember last year when this bill came up, one of the big problems that some of the lawmakers had with this bill was that how do you determine if there's a conflict, how do you determine if someone's transgender? And uh, there was a question of do you do genital inspections? Um, the language that was in that bill has kind of been tweaked now, and it's not in this bill the same way. However, um, you know, advocates for the transgender community say um, it could still end up leading to the question of genital inspections. And, and that's a big issue for, uh, you know, for a lot of these lawmakers who don't really want to go that far. Um, you know, the other thing is that this this bill, um, it it is very offensive to uh, a lot of people in the trans community 
because these kids um, who are in school are already subject to bullying. They're already um, having a hard time, in many cases, adjusting, um, and it's very difficult for them. And they see this bill as a continued assault from the legislature uh, against them and making it even harder for them to be in school and be successful. And the other thing is there's only a handful of transgender students right now playing on Ohio's high school sports teams. Right. I think your story said maybe six transgender athletes. Is that, yes. is that, wow. What's, yeah. what's the Ohio High School Athletic Association's current policy related to all this? Well, they have a policy and it, it, it involves a lot of medical stuff. Uh, you, the, the person who's playing the sport has to answer a lot of um, medical things and, you know, look at like hormones and different treatments that are being given and muscle mass. And there's there's a whole lot that goes into it. That's been used um, up to this point. And um, the opponents of this bill say it's been used rather well, keeping, you know, uh, someone out of the, you know, of women's sports. You couldn't have someone who was clearly larger, bigger, stronger, you know, participating on a girls sports team, they say, because of, of what the Ohio High School Athletic Association has. But, you know, the sponsors of this bill say it just doesn't go far enough, that they just want to cut all together. Um, the one thing that we probably should say, though, is that of those six students who are now on high school sports teams, women's sports teams, um, none of them are what we would consider top athletes in their sports in the state. Hmm. So it's, uh, you know, one of them, even when they were testifying, said, hey, I spend most of my time on the bench. Oh, <laughs> I'm glad you pointed that out. Could there be legal challenges with this if, if it does become law? There could not only be legal challenges, there probably will be legal challenges. And and the uh, director of Equality Ohio had talked to me about that. She said that um, really this ha- this is mired with all kinds of questions about Title IX and the protections that are in the civil rights, the federal civil rights law. And uh, she says it will likely face legal scrutiny if it passes. What are the next steps with this bill? Well, uh, there, you know, it's in committee now. They're talking through it. Obviously, it would have to go through the committee process. It would have to pass the House and pass the Senate. And of course, the Senate was where it ran into trouble last time. And actually, I should say that it's it's not just that last uh, last winter that we saw the uh, problem with this bill. There was a similar version that was attached to the bill that uh, was brought forward to allow NIL in the state. If you remember back that far, mm-hmm. they tried to put this on there and then uh, Governor DeWine stepped in. So this is, this bill has been going on for a while. It just keeps changing just a little bit in the way that it's applied. Well, I want to talk to you about one other um, story you had this week about another bill that relates to to kids and families. You reported on House Bill 14. Tell us about this equal parenting bill. Well, right now, what's happened in Ohio is that um, in we have 88 counties. A few of them do allow equal parenting. Um, but the sponsors of this bill say it's a few. And that all 88 counties um, handle this differently. 
And so uh, what they're saying now is that they want to have a starting point. When you have custody negotiations, they want the starting point to be um, that they will start with equal custody. And they would like to have the parents work it out among themselves and have the court kind of just guide the process versus dictating it as it does now. Gotcha. So then that would be defined as a child would spend half their time with with a mom and half their time with the dad. Correct. Correct. And right now there's a lot of courts are uh, looking at custodial parent. So you might have one parent ending up getting most of the time and the other parent getting six or seven days a month. What did supporters have to say about this? Why do they feel like this is so important? Well, they say that the, the thing is that, you know, you have a lot of kids who um, they, the, well, they feel like both parents should be parenting and they, they think that's important to begin with. But they also say that you've got to remember that when someone's only getting a kid six or seven days a month, they're also sharing that time with grandparents and uh, who might be a very influential part of that child's life. So they say, you know, having more equal time will allow other members of the family to also have more time with the kid. And they think it would be better uh, from a standpoint of watching the parents cooperate as far as time together with the kids versus now where they say it's a matter of parents, you know, sometimes fighting for time. Mm. A similar bill was introduced last year, I understand. What happened with that one? Well, that one kind of fell by the wayside, uh, kind of ran out of time. Um, but uh, they're bringing it back, and this is a little bit different. Um but it, you know, at, at the same time, it's it's something that the sponsor of this bill, um, who is a divorced dad himself, he says that this is really super important, and we can't let this go because he said that um, courts, you know, will still have all the protections uh, for kids that, that are abused or facing situations that are bad, but um, that if they don't start giving fifty fifty uh, to the parents these kids are going to grow up and they're not going to be well adjusted. Mm. And he said that this is this is the fair thing to do, especially in this day and age. Well, I've been talking with WCPO9 I-Team reporter Paula Christian and Ohio Public Radio and Television State House News Bureau reporter and producer Joe Ingalls. Thank you both so much for your time today. I hope you get some R&R this weekend. Thank you, Lucy. Thanks, Lucy. Up next, we'll discuss how the heartbreaking death of a three-year-old has raised questions about Hamilton County's child welfare system. This is Cincinnati Edition. This is Cincinnati Edition on 91.7 WVXU. I'm Lucy May. Last December, paramedics responded to a late-night 911 call to find the lifeless body of a three-year-old in the bathtub of his mother's home. The heartbreaking death of little Jaden Krebs has raised questions about Hamilton County's child welfare system and has left his grieving grandmother determined to get answers. Joining me now to discuss Jaden's case and another story about a local person demanding accountability are Cincinnati Inquirer breaking news reporter Cameron Knight. Welcome back, Cameron. Thank you. And Cincinnati Enquirer Enterprise and Watchdog Reporter Patricia Gallagher Newberry. Welcome, Patty. Thank you. So I want to start with your story, Cameron. It was absolutely heartbreaking. 
Tell us a little bit about Jaden, this little boy, Jaden Krebs. It sounds like um, he was born with some medical problems and had a pretty rough start in life. Yeah, so he was born at Cincinnati Children's, um, and his uh, his mother had a had a had a child before him, an older. So Jaden had an older brother. And um, he was in the NICU there, the intensive care unit for, for babies, for quite a while. And there were some concerns raised by the nurses there that his mother, Molly Krebs, wasn't kind of doing some of the things that they wanted her to do to take him home. So there were, you know, as you, as you need with ch- children with medical needs, you need to maybe learn some things. You need to... Um, you know, be prepared when you take the child home. And I guess there were some concerns there. And there were some also some concerns about the comments that she was making about the child, about his appearance and things like that when she did come and visit him. Mm. Um, so the nurses there reported the situation to the social workers and the social workers took it up the chain. And um, that's when Job and Family Services got involved to find a safe place for the child to go. And that was decided to be uh, Molly Krebs's mother, Mary Williams. Um, so Jaden went to live with his grandmother. And so his medical problems, I understand he was born with some, was it some facial malformation? He needed some oxygen? I mean, there were yeah, some there special were, needs that he had as a baby. There were. He was he, he needed to have some special things with his bottle to be fed, and he was going to have to be on oxygen, um, at least for the time being. Um, my understanding was that a lot of it could be addressed with surgeries moving forward, um, that kind of stuff. Gotcha. You mentioned Jaden's maternal grandmother. Um, I understand she had been caring for him and his older brother for more than a year when the court expanded the boy's mother's visits. Tell us about that. How did all that happen? Yeah, so we we had found out um, after Molly Krebs was charged, she's facing a charge of involuntary manslaughter and the death of uh, Jaden. We found out afterward that she had just gotten her kids back. That's sort of the process that led us to the story was that we discovered, oh, she had just gotten her kids back. And then we started backtracking from there. And we found out that there was, um, based on talking to the grandmother who did speak with us, that there was some conflict with her and some of the some of the people involved in the case at the, at the government level. So the guardian ad litem, who is um, a court of, you know, a person who represents the children in court. Um, And then there were the JFS workers and things like that. And uh, yeah, we discovered that there was some conflict there. And then this sudden, at least it appeared to be a sudden transition back to the mother's care. Yeah. And you mentioned the grandmother had expressed concerns to these different people about, about her daughter's ability to care for her children. What were some of the concerns she raised? So she... Uh, there, there was sort of a increase in visitation, um, and then there was an email sent from the family to JFS that said um, that the older brother. Most of the concerns were coming through the older brother because Jaden couldn't speak. Uh, Jaden, because of his his difficulties, he couldn't speak. He could communicate with his family, but he wasn't verbal per se, um, and he was pretty young still too. So the older brother was saying that there was, you know. Issues with getting all, the, all of them fed, that there, there had been some, some hitting and some just aggression during, during things with the mom. And um, 
the older child, again, according to his family, had expressed that he did not want to go back there. He did not feel safe there. He started performing poorly in school. He started kind of lashing out a lot more. Um, he contemplated suicide, mm. all of this stuff from the older child. And then within a week of that email being sent, um, the guardian had lied him in the case, filed uh, a motion to completely remove the two children from the grandmother's care. Okay, so then the court ordered the children be moved back with their mother, as I understand, on, on June 3rd. Jaden died December 1st. He was just three years old. What do we know about his death? We don't know a whole lot. We know he was found in a bathtub. Um, we There's this medical term rigor mortis, which is actually not used in any of the documents, but the, the police reports and the police documents say he was rigid. Um, I'm not uh, scientific enough minded to kind of imply anything from that, but um, that was something that they felt concerned about enough to note. And the autopsy report for the for the child is still um, is still being prepared. Um, mm -hmm. I, I've been told for the past several weeks that it's close, but it's not done yet. And then there was another aspect of it where, um, according to police, Molly. Jaden's mother said that she had given him Benadryl for some type of allergic reaction and then placed him in the tub and then then you know then the police arrived. So there are some kind of gaps in the narrative. Um, her lawyer um, did speak to me early on when when she was arrested and said that that you know when it all comes out, it's all going to come out as it was an accident. Mm. Um, so so there is some dispute there and obviously, the prosecutor's office believes there's enough to file charges. Yeah. I know county officials can't say much while this is being being investigated, but there are several investigations underway right now. Tell us what's happening in terms of what's being investigated. So we know um, JFS has said you know, they investigate anything that happens that's that's irregular in their in the process of what they do. Um, so that that's happening right now. Um, the Ohio Public Defender's Office, which operates the guardian ad litem system or are part of the guardian ad litem system in Hamilton County. They're looking into into everything. There's obviously the police investigation. Um, so there are a lot of people looking at this. Hmm. And do you have a sense for what could come of those investigations? Um, there could be additional charges filed if for some reason the autopsy comes back to say that something happened that hasn't already been explained in just the course of the investigation so far. And, um, I mean, there could be discipline for um, any of the people at the state level if they're, again, if any wrongdoing is found. Mm -hmm. um, and there could be changes at the at the institutional level as well um, if, if, again, they find something that kind of led to this that's a policy issue or a procedure issue. Mm -hmm. I think you mentioned that Jaden's mom is currently incarcerated. Um, where is his older brother now? His older brother has been moved back with his grandmother, Mary Williams. Mary Williams has custody of the of his older brother again. I I keep uh, stumbling because I we're trying to do the allow the family to have some privacy by not saying his name. Sure, I can understand. He's been through so much already. And what does the what does Mary Williams say she wants to see come of all this? Um, she wants. Jaden's story to be out there. She doesn't want it to be 
kind of swept away or forgotten. And um, she she wants her daughter to, to have some justice. There were some concerns that um, in some of the criminal cases that Molly has had over the years, her mother thinks that the judges have not been have not been hard enough on her. Mm. So she hopes that this time's different. Well, I want to move to a story that you reported, um, Patty, and it also relates to accountability. You reported about this Covington man who went down to downtown Cincinnati five days after George Floyd's death when protests were happening. Tell us about this man and, and what he set out to do that day. Brian Kaimutis is a Cincinnati native, Moeller grad, UC grad. He's a social worker. He said he went downtown uh, that night, May 30th of 2020, to just be present and and witness history. He came down with a camera around his neck, uh, and he was taking pictures and just kind of walking around the back of various crowds, as he said. Wandered around downtown, went looking for some food, didn't find any, was heading back to his car. It was around 9, 9.30 that night, so in advance of the curfew that was in place uh, during that time. Uh, saw someone in that crowd, which happens to be uh, right near Music Hall, Um, saw someone in that crowd, talked to that man, uh, again, just taking pictures of both police and protesters and onlookers uh, and doing nothing illegal, he said. And uh, and all of a sudden, he gets hit in the left eye with what's called a police marking round. Mm. Well, and he wound up with a permanent injury, as I understand. What, What does he remember about just what happened to him? He was standing one minute, and he was down on the ground the next, in his own words. Um, bystanders helped him to uh, sit behind a car. Uh, we, we obtained video from him and his lawyer that shows he was dazed, his eye was bloody, his face was bloody. He was marked with this green kind of powdery dye, which is a marking round, literally a marking round exists for police to hit someone in a crowd so that they can later question them or arrest them, right? So he's hit in the eye. It's very painful. The chemical stuff is getting in his eye. Uh, and then he um, made his way to a, a friend nearby, and the friend transported him to the hospital. Well, and your story noted that his eye socket was crushed, which sounds awful and painful. Um, and since then, he's been on a quest to hold the Cincinnati Police Department responsible. Tell us about that. Right. He's ha- he's taken three discrete actions. First, he filed a complaint with the, the police department through their internal investigation unit, came back with a... a a no on that, uh, the police department essentially uh, responding that this we have no proof that this happened. Uh, he then filed with the Citizens Complaint uh, Authority, which exists exactly for this purpose, and his case became one of 11 um, uh, from the George Floyd protests that the CCA took up. And then thirdly, he has a civil suit. I filed that last year, and it'll probably work its way through the court system sometime next year. And these investigations um, that are the police investigations, the CCA, how have they ended up? The CCA ruled against Brian Kaimutis last Monday at its regular meeting, said that it could not sustain his allegation of excessive force for the reason that they could not um, determine which officer fired the marking round that hit him in the face. Wow. So they're not saying it didn't happen, but they can't. 
decide who to blame, essentially. Exactly. Uh, Gabe Davis, the director of the CCA, is on record and said publicly at the meeting, we believe a CPD officer fired that round that hit Kaimutis, but we cannot determine who. There were three officers equipped with this kind of projectile at that time and place where he was hit. Uh, all three were interviewed, and all three and their supervisors said, we saw no one hit in the face. We um, we have no evidence that someone was hit in the face. We fired rounds that went into the lower part of of people in the crowd as uh, the protocol demands. So, so that's why they ruled against the excessive force um, allegation because they could not put it on an individual officer. What about body cams? I mean, you know, the body camera video has been so important in so many cases. Was there no body camera video? There was no body camera video. The officers in question were um, part of a unit that were not required at that time to wear body camera body cameras. Uh, that has changed uh, in the wake of that. They are now required to have body cameras, but there is no body camera Um Kaimutis has three different videos. He he provided to me uh, three different videos of the incident, one showing um, a line of officers um, uh, in conflict with the group of onlookers and, and protesters. One showed his bloody eye, and the third one was – I can't remember the third one, but he had – he so – he found he and his lawyer found someone in the crowd with video evidence that they think um, uh, support his allegations about what happened. Hmm. What have been the lasting impacts of his injury? He says he his doctors have said the um, the damage is permanent. He has what's called a macular hole, which is a tear in his retina. It um, limits his vision in the left eye and makes it uh, extremely hard to see in bright conditions or dim conditions. Um, and he's told that he'll get cataracts earlier in life. So he's, you know, 28 right now and uh, is told it's not going to get better. Hmm. You mentioned that he's filed this civil lawsuit. Um, how long is that expected to take to get resolved? His lawyer doesn't think it'll be resolved this year, thinks it will go into next year. It's against the city, the police chief, and the three officers that he were at the scene, were confirmed to be at the scene and equipped with uh, the the projectiles in question. Um, the lawsuit, uh, the, the officers have responded to the lawsuit in a court filing saying um, that they are not culpable, that that they were uh, acted in good faith, and that uh, Kaimutis himself assumed some risk in being at present at um, a kind of gathering that was attracting police attention. Wow. Okay. Uh, could this case bring about change? I mean, it sounds like some recommendations have been made. You mentioned that this body camera policy has already changed. What, what change could this case bring about? Right. Uh, there were recommendations from the Citizens Complaint Authority tied to uh, Kaimutis' case and the others from that time period. Um, among them, uh, the, the CCA is recommending greater detail in what are called use of force reports, um, greater tracking or cl more close tracking of projectiles that are, you know, um, uh, released at a, at a scene, uh, among other changes. Um, you know, Kaimutis himself is seeking uh, a jury trial, as are the three officers in the civil suit. So there could be some changes. Um, the recommendations went to the city manager's office, effective last Monday night, um, and then the city manager, you know, kind of the ball is in the court of the city manager to respond to those recommendations. 
uh, and work with uh, the police department and the complaint authority to see which are uh, helpful in avoiding this a repeat of this kind of situation. I'll also say that um, at the national level, uh, uh, a ophthalmology group has recommended against the use of these kinds of projectiles. Um, rubber bullets, et cetera, and they made those recommendations almost immediately after the George Floyd um, case uh, happened, and so many civilians were hit with these kinds of rounds. Mm. Talk about a little bit more about how this has changed this man's life. I mean, what he can do, what he can't do. Just It seems like he has some limitations now that he didn't have before. He does have some limitations. Uh, he says he drives less at night because uh, the bright lights of cars are hard to, um, you know, make out shapes and such. Um, he lights his his own apartment with more night lights so he can see things in his own uh, residence. Um, and he, you know, basically said that there's not a day that goes by that he doesn't think about it or he's not impacted by it. So, uh, you know, he's continuing to live his life, but he does want justice and uh, he wants to take it through the legal system. I will add on the on the suit, interestingly, yesterday uh, in the city of Los Angeles, a jury awarded a man named Dion Jones $375,000 for almost an identical situation. He was in a crowd on May 30th, 2020, the exact same day. Uh, he was hit in the face, uh, the cheek, by a uh, what was called a hard foam projectile. Don't know if it was one of the exploding kind like uh, Brian Camutis was hit with. Um, anyway, he pursued it through the courts, and a jury yesterday awarded him the $375,000 for his pain and suffering uh, and said his Fourth Amendment search and seizure rights were violated. Hmm. Well, I would urge all of our listeners to look up both these stories on, on your website, Inquirer.com. There's a lot more detail about both of these important cases. I've been talking with Cincinnati Inquirer breaking news reporter Cameron Knight and Cincinnati Inquirer Enterprise and watchdog reporter Patricia Gallagher-Newberry. Thank you both so much for your time today and for your reporting on these important stories. Thank you. You bet. Up next, the NKU men's basketball team is headed to the NCAA tournament. We'll talk about the team's chances as March Madness approaches. This is Cincinnati Edition. This is Cincinnati Edition on 91.7 WVXU. I'm Lucy May. The Northern Kentucky University men's basketball team is going back to the NCAA tournament. Do the Norse have a chance to advance in the big dance? Joining me now to talk about that and all things March Madness is Local 12 digital sports reporter and host of the Skinny Podcast, Richard Skinner. Welcome back, Richard. Thanks for having me again. Always fun to have you here. So NKU's men's basketball team has qualified for the tournament yet again. This is the fourth time since transitioning to Division One in the 2012-2013 season. How big a deal is this for the North? It's huge because um, I think they've made it look so easy in that transition. And you've seen a lot more teams that are making the D2 to D1 jump. Bellarmine down the road in Louisville is the most recent. They're not alone. And it's hard. You know, they're all in one bid league, so they're not getting any at-large consideration. And understandably so. They don't, you know, win enough big games outside of the conference, etc. So you're literally playing for one spot each year. And that's not easy, and they've made it look easy. Dave Beasel did a great job initially in the transition from D2 to D1. They made a great hire in John Brandon, who then went to went to UC. Never know how that was going to work out. It didn't work out, unfortunately, but that was a really good hire. 
Darren Horn had success at Western Kentucky University, then didn't have a lot of success at South Carolina. Nobody really has, but then got hired here. So they've made two real home run hires that have helped this. Um, you know, some other factors as well that have led into it. They've had a, they've got a little. Lucky's not the right word. Fortunate. Um, you know, two of their starters are from this area. One kid, a forward, Trey Robinson from Hamilton. Another, Sam Vincent from Highlands High School in Northern Kentucky. Another from right down the road in Lexington. So they've, they've had some fortune that they've had good players in this area that have gone there. But it's, it's not easy. It's just not. Yeah. Well, and the first ever NCAA tournament appearance for the Norse in 2017 was against University of Kentucky. I was there. Were you? Yes. That was a heck of a game when you consider the team was up against a bunch of future NBA players, wasn't it? Talk yeah. to us about that game. And they played them tooth and nail for a good chunk of it. And yeah, that was a, that was a really good Kentucky team, as a matter of fact. And, and NKU played great. A couple of years ago, they, they played Texas Tech, which ended up going to the championship game that year. And they played them good for... 30, 35 minutes before losing by, I believe, 14 points it was. They were a 14. Texas Tech was a three seed. So they've gotten in and made some noise. This will probably be a bigger ask because they're probably going as a 16 seed, meaning you're playing a one, and that's really hard to do. Only one team's ever been a 16 that's beaten a one before, so that's that's a that's a big-time ask. Ooh, what's that team? That was Virginia a couple years ago. It was a one seed, got beat by Maryland, Baltimore County, and one of the great upsets of all time, and then came back the next year. Virginia did and won the national championship. So oh from misery to success. <laughs> <laughs> Anything can happen That's in this right. tournament. That's right. That you know, the Norse made it in 2020, but that whole tournament was canceled because of COVID 19. Did, did, was that a hiccup that you thought might affect the team in a negative way? Yeah, because again, you don't know how many opportunities you're going to get to do this. And that was a really good team. I, that that one might have gone in as a 14 or a 13 seed. And then you're talking about it's still a long shot, but you can still maybe pull off that upset. Um, you know, then the next year was a COVID year, and they only played I think 19 or 20 games. Didn't completely finish the season, and then voila, here we are now. And and um, yeah, it's 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 one of those ones where you just don't know how many times you're going to get the opportunity with a group of guys. And I think for a lot of teams that year, that was so disappointing. The year that Dayton was going to be, I think, a number one seed in the tournament and didn't get played, and we'll never know what they might have done in a magical run. So that was a sad, sad year for sure. Yeah, you you mentioned this already, but let's talk a little bit more about the Norse's chances this year. I mean, is it possible that NKU could emerge as one of the Cinderella teams? Yeah, I just think it's going to be really difficult. I I, I was hoping they might play in the, the, the first round up in Dayton and maybe get a chance to earn a win in the tournament and then get another swing at it with a one seed. I think they've played their way above that now based on what some other things have happened. But you're talking about them playing in Alabama a Purdue, a Houston, maybe a UCLA. Um, you know, those are all really, really good teams. It would take a minor miracle. But like I said, that Virginia team the one year, nobody thought that was going to happen, and they, they pulled off the upset. Again, it's happened one time, so it's not never happened, but it's very rare. <laughs> not impossible. So what are you watching for in the tournament this year? Yeah, I think it's going to be great. Um, you know, from from an area perspective, Xavier's probably going to go in as a four seed, maybe a three if they can shake things down and maybe win the, the Big East this weekend. Kentucky's gone in a month from being out of the tournament up to a six seed, maybe a five seed, and suddenly they're red hot and fun to watch. Ohio State's making a nice run. They're going to have to win the whole thing in their tournament to get there. UC's going to have to win their whole tournament to get there. But I think it's a really wide open year. I think any of the top six from the six seed line all the way up, I think there's 25, 26 teams that could win this whole thing. So I think it's going to be a fun tournament to watch. Well, there's a lot of good basketball in this in this area. I mean, you've just rattled off a whole bunch of teams. Is it a surprise that NKU's the local team to get this automatic it, bid? It's funny. So about a month ago, I was thinking, man, Kentucky's not going to make it, and Ohio State's not going to make it, and Cincinnati's not going to make it. Xavier was going. They've they've played their way in from the get go. I thought 
Xavier may be the only team in the tournament. And now suddenly you got Xavier, you got NKU. We consider for us Indiana's in our coverage area in a way. We put up their stuff from AP. So you're going to have Indiana in the tournament. And suddenly it's four teams again. And so uh, it went from maybe only one to four. So there's going to be at least a lot of rooting interest locally. Yeah, a lot to watch. The bars will be busy. <laughs> for sure. That's for, for sure. sure. <laughs> be busy anyway for March Madness. <laughs> That's true. That's true. No matter who's playing. Exactly. So who are the players that you'll be watching most closely this tournament? For, for Purdue, Zach Eadie's a seven foot four center, um, and he's really interesting. He's gone from a guy who was really a project into when you watch him play, he's just really, really skilled. And not every seven foot four person is really, really skilled. He's become a really skilled player. There's a story with the Miller kid at Alabama who was on the periphery, involved in a, a shooting death mm-hmm. on the on the campus. Um, that's become a national story, and you can imagine the legs it's going to get. And, and you know, from a local perspective, Oscar Shebway of Kentucky is always fun to watch. Uh, Colby Jones and Sule Boom for Xavier are fun to watch. Jaime Jaquez for UCLA is fun to watch. There's a lot of great players to watch in this tournament. Yeah. Well, you know, we talked about in that 2017 game, there were UK players who went on to play in the NBA, a whole bunch of them. Is, do, the, do the Norse ever have a shot at that? Do any, are any of those players such standout that the that the NBA would say, hey, let's let's get a Norse in the I, in the I think it would be rare because I think if that player comes along in today's day and age of the transfer portal, that player will go, all right, I've got another year of eligibility. I'm showing myself to scouts. Let me go to a Kentucky. Let me go to an Indiana. Let me go to whatever name, Kansas. Go to a big name school and prove myself there. Um, I think if that were to take place, you could take credit for it as, mm-hmm. as an NKU fan or even the coaching staff, but that player probably would test himself at a, at a higher level to do that. NBA level guys, it's just it's hard to get them at a, at a school that size. Sure, that makes sense. So how do, we've talked about the bars, <laughs> but how do you think all of this will be affected by legalized sports gambling? I think will it's it? huge. Really? Huge. Yeah, talked about that. Yeah, especially now, obviously, it's in Ohio. You know, I, I, I've traveled down to the one in Indiana because it's close to my house at Hollywood Casino to occasionally go down and, and place a bet. And I can remember for some of these tournament games and tournament days, it was packed. Now, at least you got it spread out a little bit. And I think you'll see people that um, the kiosks have not quite came, come along at some of the bars like I thought they would. But I think you'll see a lot of it. Ohio obviously churned out some numbers pretty recently about what sports gambling did in the state. And it was huge. And we haven't gotten to March Madness. We barely had the end of the NFL season. So I think that's a big part of it. Right or wrong, it's here. If people don't like it, you don't have to like it. But if people, that's what they want to do, I think it does, for them, give them interest in rooting, interest in the game. I think you'll see a lot of people rooting on games. You're like, why are people over there cheering for this and people over there groaning for that? It's not even a local team because they have some stake in the game. Yeah, <laughs> there's money on the <laughs> exactly. line. Exactly. So uh, what does that mean for the office brackets? Are they going to be a thing of the past or do you think they're just too darn popular? No, I think they're too much fun. I mean, you know, uh, when when I worked at the, the Cincinnati Post, we, we had a, a, a lady that literally knew nothing about basketball and just picked names and she won it one year by picking names and it was the most frustrating thing ever you're like do you know and it, it, i'm not trying to look down on i'm like she's like no nah, i just picked names yeah. good for you you yeah. know what however you did it you won and i'm gonna it's like the you go to a horse race i like the pretty colored horse yeah great you do and if it wins it doesn't matter you put your money on the line so yeah i just still think they're so popular because you don't have to know a ton to do those things and i think those that do know a ton think they're the smartest person in the room and they want to prove that right yeah yeah and sometimes they end up looking kind of bad exactly as a lot of red yeah. x's on that sheet that's on the wall yeah Okay, so this makes me want to ask you, what are, who do you think those last two teams are going to be in the big game? Yeah, that's a good one. I, I love UCLA because they've done it with this group before. They just lost one of their best defensive players over the weekend, but they got a great point guard who was there a couple of years ago when they got to the final. They got Jaquez, as I mentioned. Um, 
a dark horse for me is is in the same league that Xavier's in, and that's Connecticut. They looked the part early in the year. They hit a speed bump a little bit. Didn't play well for a month or so. They're really good, and I love Houston. I think Houston's Houston's got about five guys that are all the same guy. They can all rebound it. They're tough as nails. They're really really good. Uh, th- those are probably my three. The dark horse being UConn. Yeah, I, you know I appreciate you. I forget UConn has a men's team. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, the women's team is the one that everybody knows. That's yeah. right. Yeah. That's right. I've been talking with local twelve digital sports reporter and host. Host of the Skinny Podcast, Richard Skinner. Thanks so much for your time today, Richard. Always it's always enjoyed. fun. Thank you. You've been listening to Cincinnati Edition on 91.7 WVXU. Our producer is Selena Reeder. Associate producer is Asia Johnson. Technical director is Derek Smith. If you miss our program live, you can subscribe to Cincinnati Edition wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Lucy May. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend.